clouds. There we go. Thank you, Hacham. The stage is yours. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here and to see uh, all of you again. And um, please, because I'm not using two monitors today, if you have a question, raise the virtual hand and you'll, you'll pop up to the top of the, because at the moment I can only see uh, four or five people at a single glance. All right. So we've got three sessions uh, over the course of three weeks uh, where I'm supposed to introduce philosophy. Well, philosophy is very broad and um, it has lots of sub-disciplines. So, so we spent just one session looking at logic, uh, what logic is, informal logic, formal logic. And we're going to spend one session uh, today uh, as an introduction to metaphysics. Now, metaphysics is one of the, you know, the core sub-disciplines of philosophy. And yet a kind of interesting thing that happens is, I suppose if you do a history degree, you won't spend all that long, I think, defining what history is. I mean, there is such a thing as historiography and whatever, but like, I don't know if you take an entire undergraduate course on what is history. I don't know, maybe you would. Or uh, if you were doing psychology or biology, or but philosophers spend a lot of time before they do any philosophy, thinking about what is philosophy? And in fact, it's become a field, the philosophy of philosophy. Um, um, Timothy Williamson at um, University of Oxford, a professor of philosophy, wrote a book, The Philosophy of Philosophy. Um, and metaphysics itself is a very, very difficult thing to define. And in fact, I think there's a lot of um, erroneous definitions out there. Um, the reason metaphysics is called metaphysics I don't know what anyone else may think in this in this virtual room. I don't know what anyone else may have heard. The reason the metaphysics is called metaphysics is because of um, the way in which Aristotle's writings were organized. Aristotle had a very important book called The Physics. And then he had a whole load of kind of loose chapters and essays and, and kind of um, investigations, treatises that the the Arab schoolmen, the, the kind of Arab um, philosophers who were responsible for preserving uh, Aristotle's writings, they, they put a whole kind of covets together, a whole collection together of some of Aristotle's loose writings, and they put them second to the physics. So first you read the, the physics, and then you read the metaphysics, which just means the stuff that came after the physics. So some people try and say, you know, Yavad ex post facto, oh, the word metaphysics, it means like above physics. So it's like the spiritual or metaphysics. It like transcends the physics. It transcends the physical. And that might be, you know, a kind of fortuitous, a fortuitously appropriate description of what a lot of uh, metaphysicians study. A lot of metaphysicians do study something which is in some sense or other transcendent of the physical, beyond the physical. But in actual fact, it's called metaphysics because it's the stuff that you would read after you read the physics of Aristotle, okay? So if you really wanna know uh, what metaphysics is historically, uh, one way to think about it is, well, it's the, it, it, it's the study um, that Aristotle uh, was introducing in those essays, right? In, you, you can buy a book now called The Metaphysics by Aristotle, right? Which, which 
is the second book to read after the physics. So if you want to know what metaphysics is, you could just look at the stuff that Aristotle uh, discussed in that book. Aristotle isn't always that helpful though. Um, he makes a distinction in a number of places, but including in the metaphysics, he makes a distinction between things which are well known to us, right? So like the ordinary objects of everyday experience, like this telephone or my glasses. Now, of course, neither had been invented in ancient Greece, neither telephone or glasses, but they're both like ordinary objects of our everyday experience that the things which are well known to us. Then he says there are things which are better known, sorry about the typo there, uh, better known in themselves. I suppose what he means is um, we start with the objects of everyday experience, but actually the more we think about them, the more we know about them, the more puzzles they give rise to. Uh, now, to speak completely anachronistically, because Aristotle didn't believe in any of these things, or indeed uh, uh, certainly didn't know about these things. But a contemporary physicist would tell you, right, that this phone is isn't that a nice picture of, 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 of me and 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 um, there you go, it's me and my wife. Anyway, um, this the, uh, this phone, a physicist would tell you, right, it's it's made of all these atoms, and it's completely different to how it appears because. Uh, if only you could zoom in close enough, what you'd see is that each atom is actually made up more of space than anything else because there's a giant gap between the center of an atom and the electrons that go around the atom. And this is actually more like, this phone is actually more like a cloud of atoms than anything else, right? And, 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 and as you zoom in, things which look clear and, and, and precise, take my body, for example, there are gonna be atoms on the edge of my body which are kind of um, indeterminate as, as being between being in my body or actually falling off, right? We have cells that are falling off us all the time, right? So if you could zoom in uh, uh, close enough, what looks like this sharp boundary of my skin would probably look more like a cloud, right? So the things uh, which are better known to us, right? Th those objects of everyday experience, in a sense, once you start philosophizing, they give rise to all sorts of questions and problems. But the most fundamental things, the most basic things, for example, the building blocks that create the universe. So in contemporary physics, you might say quarks. Quarks are better known in themselves than telephones. Why? Because quarks, once you understand what they are, they're perfectly precise. They do exactly what the scientists say they do, right? Um, and the world of everyday experience is built up of these things which until you've had what John Stuart Mill would call an adventure in philosophy, the universe is built up of things that until you'd had an, invent an adventure in philosophy, you'd never have dreamt of. Never dreamt of things like quarks, right? However, once you arrive at those things, you recognize there's a sense in which they're better known in themselves than human bodies, telephones, phones, the things which are better known to us. Are you with me? Because they're more precise. So what we do is we start off with the things we know, but then we try and kind of um, regiment our knowledge. We try and understand things better and better and better. And one of the first stages in understanding things better 
is recognizing how little we understand. Right? One of the first stages in understanding things better is to take the things which are, so to speak, better known to us, the objects of everyday experience, recognize just how many mysteries there are behind them. And then the job of the philosopher is to arrive at the more general, the more basic, the more fundamental elements of reality, which don't give rise to as many puzzles, which once we arrive at them, they help us to explain the world of everyday experience. So metaphysics is some type of study which begins with the things which are better known to us, but ends with the things which are better known in themselves. Well, that's a nice introduction. Ar Aristotle does say that of, of, of the things he's studying in the metaphysics. But you could say that of a lot of disciplines. I mean, what I've described is just physics, no, not metaphysics. In physics, you start with objects of everyday experience, and you end up with things like quarks and electrons and, and whatever other Higgs bosons and whatever, uh, which are much more precisely defined. And then you, ex, you know, you explain, well, that's physics, not metaphysics. Many things start like that. Many things start with things which are well known to us and end up with things which are more precisely defined uh, and therefore better known in themselves. Biology, psychology, all sorts of studies do that. Well, Aristotle has another definition of what he's interested in uh, in these essays and, and uh, treatises which, which got grouped together and called the metaphysics one day. Um, he calls it the study of beings qua being. Well, that's not very useful. <laughs> I don't know what that means. What might that mean? Okay, what does it, what does it mean? Right, so first of all, um, Aristotle doesn't think there is a thing called being, you know, like if you read some much more modern philosophy, you know, thousands of years later, like by Heidegger, Heidegger is very interested in this thing called being, as if there is this thing called being with a capital B. That's not what Aristotle's interested in here. Rather, uh, I can explain it better by giving you some examples of other studies, okay? Physics studies things qua being movable, right? All that physics is really interested in, or at least one area of physics, is how things move. This thing knocks against this thing and moves that thing. And we, just, we describe all of the forces, all of the um, uh, properties and all of the forces uh, that, that act upon one another as things move each other, right? That's a very kind of mechanical view of physics, but lots of physics does work like that. So, you know, um, the physicist isn't necessarily interested in the color of objects or in how they feel to the touch or, uh, you know, what, what psychological associations these objects have in your mind. That's just not an interest to physics. Physics is interested in things insofar as they move and can be moved. That's physics. Mathematics, it studies things qua countable or measurable. So you start, you know, you, you, uh, two times two is four, uh, uh, and then uh, two times five is 10. Two times six is 12. Two what and two what, a four what, right? What, what are we talking about? Well, it doesn't really matter what you're counting in mathematics, right? So, so you take a sum, two plus two equals four. And you ask, yeah, but two what and two what is four what? You want to two anythings. Two, two apples plus two apples are four apples. Two 
elephants plus two elephants are four elephants. In, in mathematics, we don't care about any other properties of the objects other than the fact that they're countable or if it's in geometry that they're measurable, right? Does that make sense to you? So in physics, we're only interested in objects so far as they can move. In mathematics, we're only interested in objects so far as they're countable or measurable. In metaphysics, we study things qua being, right? What we're interested in, in a sense, it's the most general science. We're interested in the properties shared by all things. We're interested in um, what does it mean to exist? What, what follows from the fact that a thing exists? So, it's, so in a sense, Aristotle is thinking of metaphysics as the science of existence, right? Perhaps the most general science. That might be uh, a good definition of metaphysics. Um, another way of looking into what we mean, I must tell you a story. Um, I, I um, let me stop sharing for a minute so I can see all your lovely faces for a bit. Um, I was habitually rejected by Cambridge. It's just a, just a, you know, a personal story. Uh, was rejected um, as an undergraduate twice. I was rejected to do my, my master's there. I was rejected to do my uh, PhD there. It was very nice. I went back once for a, um, a, some sort of um, seminar, graduate seminar. And this guy there, Michael Potter, who was the head of philosophy at the time, he said, Sam, why did you never apply to Cambridge? We'd have loved to have had you in our philosophy department. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah? You've rejected me like more times than I can count. Anyway. Um, and then I was invited to give a, a lecture to the D Society, which is a very um, prestigious um, uh, invitation. I was like, huh, now they want me. Anyway, Cambridge, uh, 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 why am I saying about their rejection? Oh, yeah, here's, what, here's why they rejected me one time. I had said in my, um, in like my undergraduate statement, something like, I'm really passionately interested in metaphysics. And in my interview, fair enough, right? If you say something like that in your, in your statement, the interviewer said, Sam, I see that you say you're very interested in metaphysics. Can you tell me what is metaphysics? Well, that was a really unfair question because actually it's really, really hard to define it. There are many experts in metaphysics who would struggle to tell you exactly what metaphysics is, right? Um, it didn't mean I wasn't interested in it, but I completely floundered in that question. Anyway. Another way to try and, and define what metaphysics is, right, is to look at some of the questions. Um, thank you, Simon. Uh, I should look at some of the, we should look at some of the questions that Aristotle um, was addressing in these various uh, treatises and chapters that got um, bound together under the title of metaphysics. So let me share the screen again. Here are some of the questions that Aristotle deals with in the metaphysics. Um, and I'll try and explain them. One, are sensible substances the only substances? Okay, so generally, uh, until uh, really quite modern times, physics and all of the natural sciences 
were only interested in the sensible world. What does sensible mean? It doesn't mean like well-behaved. It means that you can sense it with your eyes, your ears, your nose, some of your sense organs, right? And in fact, even today, you know, in the Hadron Collider in, in, in um, where is it? In CERN, right, the, the, the Hadron Collider, they're doing these very impressive experiments with particles that, that um, are absolutely undetectable to human physiology, right? You couldn't see them with your eye, you wouldn't feel them if they passed through you. But nonetheless, what the physicists measure are like dials on their screens or, or, or you know, they need to have some sort of output that the senses can, can measure ultimately because the physical world, the reason we believe that these particles exist these invisible particles is they help to explain the behavior of visible things, right? Uh, only if you believe in all of these particles can you tell a really coherent story that explains the visible universe, the sensible universe. Now, if you are what today is called a physicalist, then you believe the only things that exist, okay, are the things which are necessary for the truth of our best physical theories, okay? So to ask whether the only things that exist are sensible is basically to ask an early form of the question, is physicalism true? Are the only things that exist the things that the natural sciences study? Or are there some non-sensible things? Angels, souls, numbers, We'll come back to things that are completely abstract right and therefore don't you know have no location in space or time and have no causal power you never bump into the number two and the number two can't be a direct cause of, of any physical event in the world the number two and yet we casually speak in mathematics as if certain numbers exist. For instance, there is a number, but there is a whole number between one and three, right? There is, just mean there, there exists, right? So we talk as if uh, numbers exist, for example, that would be an, an example of a non-sensible being. So one of the questions that Aristotle's interested in uh, when he's studying metaphysics are, you know, are there nonsensible substances? Are there things that exist out there um, that are not sensible? Now, uh, another question uh, that he seems to be interested in in the metaphysics is what is more fundamental, abstract properties or concrete individuals? Uh, let me give you uh, a definition of both things. Although like metaphysics, Abstract and concrete are really, really hard to define as well. Um, one of the best metaphysicians of, of modern times uh, was David Lewis. He died at the beginning of, of the 21st century. And in his uh, book on the, on the plurality of worlds, he gives three or four definitions of the distinction between abstract and concrete and says none of them are very good. But most philosophers seem to know what we're talking about when we make this distinction. But so, so again, um, I'm... You know, I'm not alone in, in, in finding these definitional uh, um, tasks quite difficult, but uh, what, what's an abstract thing and what's a concrete thing? For our purposes, and this is, this is absolutely um, fine for our purposes, a concrete entity is anything that has a specific location in space and time. Yes, even um, 
say for now, space and time. Um, and an abstract property, um, well, first of all, abstract entities, if they exist at all, okay, which the first question wonders about, abstract entities would be entities that are not concrete. So that means entities which don't exist in space or time. I suppose another way uh, to define the concrete abstract distinction would be say a concrete entity uh, is an entity that has causal power over things in space and time. It can cause things to move. It can cause, so on that definition, God is concrete rather than abstract because even if he doesn't have a specific location, he has causal power because he can cause things in space and time to move around and you know, to, to, to follow his will. Um, and an abstract thing would be something that exists but has absolutely no causal um, um, influence over things in space and time. That would be another way to distinguish between the abstract and the concrete. Anyway, what's an abstract property? Well, an abstract property is something like redness, squareness, hardness, softness, in English, it's very easy, just anything with ness on the end, apart from Loch Ness, right? Uh, Loch Ness is different, but anything apart, you know, anything apart from Loch Ness with ness at the end um, um, would be an abstract property. And abstract properties seem to be held by concrete individuals, right? So take this phone. It has the property of being rectangular. Rectangularity, that's another, that's another, uh, Arity can also be, it's not always ness, it's sometimes itty, right? So rectangularity is an abstract property held by this phone. Blueness is an abstract property held by at least the black of this phone, right? Um, so you have a concrete individual, the phone, and you have a whole host of abstract properties. Now, Plato was famous for thinking that the abstract properties are in some sense or other more real than any particular concrete individual. So rectangularity and blueness are somehow more basic, more real than this particular phone, okay? Um, to give you a basic taste of a platonic metaphysics, Plato thinks that when you see an instance of a property in this world, so you see something red or you see something circular, or indeed you see something blue or rectangular, it's never a perfect instance. For instance, this isn't perfectly rectangular. Take a magnifying glass and you'll see, well, first of all, it's got curved edges, right? Uh, but take a magnifying glass or a microscope and you'll discover that, that um, no particular instance in this world of a geometric shape, triangular, circular, is absolutely perfect. Try, try to draw two lines with a 2B pencil, right, that are exactly of equal length, and then look with a magnifying glass. And if they still look equal, look with a microscope. And if they still look equal, look with an electron microscope, right? The, you can't draw perfectly equal lines in um, a concrete reality. Only in the world of abstract ideas do you get perfection. As soon as something becomes concrete, you uh, will discover imperfections. There's a midrash in Midrash Rabbah, a Bereshit Rabbah that discusses this idea, right? Because God um, 
describes how he wants the trees to appear in the six days of creation. He says, let there be fruit bearing trees. Uh, and, and the way that it's worded implies that the trees themselves uh, uh, will be edible and tasty, just like the fruit. Uh, but, the, but, but the wording also implies that the trees that appeared after God commanded them to appear didn't appear exactly like he had commanded them to. Uh, they appeared only with with um, with fruit that that uh, that have a taste, but not the tree that has a taste. What's that midrash getting at? Is it God is omnipotent? You know, God's omnipotent, right? God forbid he couldn't bring about something as he wanted it to be. No, there's a kind of platonic um, assumption um, undergirding that midrash, which is to say that there's no such thing as concrete perfection. So even a perfect being like God, if he wants to create a concrete reality, um, there will be some um, lag, you could call it, between the ideal plan, which is perfectly abstract, which is in the mind of God, and the concrete reality, which is not perfectly abstract, it's concrete. So Plato had this notion that perfection is only in the world of ideas. And therefore, he thought that we live in a kind of shadow. We live, our world is, the, is, is something like the shadow cast by the world of perfect ideas. Because everything you find down here is just a pale reflection of the perfect ideas that, the, that we study in geometry and mathematics and science and philosophy. It says the job of the philosopher, he has this beautiful analogy, it's a well-known analogy, um, where lots of slaves are, are tied down in a cave. And what they see all day long is shadow puppets um, because there's a fire behind them. And all they get to see all day long is the shadows of the shadow puppets being, uh, being operated behind their backs. But because they're tied down, you could imagine them even if you want with blinkers on, they mistake the shadow puppets for reality. And the job of the philosopher is to break free from the cave and to see the actual, you know, uh, forms, the, 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 the perfect ideas whose pale reflection is all we get to see uh, cast against, uh, cast as shadows on the wall of the cave. So for Plato, it was very much the case that um, abstract properties are um, more fundamental, somehow more basic, somehow more real than concrete individuals. And Aristotle was Plato's student, uh, but Aristotle disagreed. Aristotle said, sure, 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 we have these things called abstract ideas, it's very important, we study them, but they exist in the concrete world, right? For example, if there wouldn't, if there's no such thing as a duck, there'd be no such thing as duckness either, right? Duckness only exists insofar as there are ducks, right? Um, and and um, you might say, well, hold on a minute. What about unicorn? We can talk about unicorns and there never was a unicorn. Yeah, but there were horses and there are horns and there is white, there are white things. And what we're just doing is rearranging elements, right? But there's no such thing as a property that isn't found somewhere or built out of things which are found somewhere. So in a sense, the concrete world comes first and the world of properties, however important they are, and even if you wanna say properties exist somehow, 
they, they depend for their existence upon the concrete reality um, in which they're implicated. So, so far so Aristotle. Um, if you, I hate to be um, doing some shameless self-publicity, but I'm gonna do it twice at, uh, uh, in this uh, session, if not more. Um, I have on my website, samliebens.com, um, there is a, there's a Torah section of the website. And on the Torah section of the website, there is a, a year's worth of blogs that I wrote on Parashat HaShavua. And the very, very first blog in that series is on um, Parashat Bereshit, obviously. Um, and it looks at a midrash where Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are having an argument as to uh, what was created first, the heavens or the earth? And it's a very strange question, right? Because we, I, you know, I think we all imagine that the heavens were made first, right? Because Bereshit Barala Kimeta Shamayim Vieta Aretz. And we, we often think as the of the heavens as being, you know, the more fundamental place. Isn't that where somehow God lives? Or isn't it where the angels live? Isn't that what comes first? And then the world is made second. But Beit Shammai, Beit Shammai begs to differ and says, no, the world was created first and only afterwards were the heavens created. There's a textual basis to this argument because um, in, in at least one instance in Nach, uh, even though Shemaim always, you know, almost always comes before Aretz, there's at least one instance in Nach in which uh, um, Eretz comes before Shemaim. I think it's the, the beginning of uh, the second chapter of Sefer Bereshit. Um, um, so, and Beit Shammai just puts a lot of weight on that particular passage. Well, what are they really arguing about? Well, I, I suggest that one way of understanding their argument is that it's kind of... Uh, um, a rabbinic version of this debate between Plato and Aristotle, which is to say, um, does the world of abstract ideas, Plato's heaven, right, does that come before the concrete world? Or does there first of all need to be a concrete world before you can, so to speak, abstract from it um, the, notions, the notion of a platonic heaven? Uh, but, but like I said, I'm not going to go, go deeper into that now, but if people are interested in that particular reading of that particular midrash, I've told you the address. Another question uh, Aristotle um, looks at, oh, oh, so a sub-question to the, oh no, sorry, another question that Aristotle looks at is what are mathematical objects? Do they exist? Are numbers real things? Right? Uh, um, Plato seemed to think they were. Aristotle struggles with that idea. Uh, those two views are known as mathematical realism or Platonism is the idea that numbers actually exist. Um, and the view that's more likely to have been Aristotle's, although Aristotle is a particularly difficult writer to um, unpack on this issue, um, but the view that is anti-Plato about numbers is often called nominalism, uh, which is to say, no, um, when we when we talk about numbers if they, as if they exist, that's just a façon de parler. It's just a way of speaking. But but we don't actually, in order to explain mathematical truth, we don't actually need to believe that numbers exist. That they're part of the furniture of the universe. Okay, so this is another way of trying. So far, all I'm doing right now uh, is trying to get into Cambridge by giving a definition of metaphysics, and and, and I recognise I'm I'm still struggling because what I've done is I've, I've told you some of the things Aristotle says when trying to characterize um, um, 
those chapters and essays that got grouped together and called the metaphysics. And we've also looked at some of the questions that he uh, engages with. Let me try another angle of attack. Uh, okay, before I do, um, let me say two things. So number one is that philosophy as a contemporary discipline kind of fractured into two very different schools um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. There's the school known as continental philosophy and it's known as continental philosophy because it, it took root in continental Europe. Uh, and there's another school of philosophy called analytical philosophy, um, which is sometimes unfairly called Anglophone philosophy, meaning English speaking philosophy. The reason it's called Anglophone philosophy is because if continental philosophy took root in continental Europe, Anglophone philosophy took root in English speaking countries, England, America, and to some extent, uh, and in to an impressive degree, actually, uh, Australia and uh, other English speaking countries. Um, but it's really unfair because many of the founders of what we call um, analytic philosophy were also continental Europeans like Ludwig Wittgenstein, Gottlieb Frege, Rudolf Carnap um, and others. So uh, let me say, I just want to say we're going to say two things before the next slide. So the first thing is about that distinction. Okay. Metaphysics is still uh, an interest of um, continental philosophy, but and I'm trying, I don't want to be partisan because I belong to the analytical school, school and therefore I don't want to engage in kind of caricature or, 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 or partisan kind of trickery. Um, but I think it's fair to say the continental metaphysics is particularly interested in, in the nature of being. And what they'll talk about is um, things like, what is the ethical significance of being? What is the meaning of being? Given the fact that we have this thing called being, how should we behave? Um, and these are quite, these often turn out to be quite poetic um, meditations upon the human condition or the condition of being. That's fine and important. Analytical philosophy is much more interested in breaking things down analytically and thinking about their parts and, and, and prides itself on a type of rigor precision, a kind of mathematical rigor. And I think in that respect, it has a lot more in common with the Chachamim, especially with when I'm talking, when we talk about medieval Jewish philosophy in the rationalist school, it has a lot more in common with philosophy as it's practiced uh, by analytical philosophers than it does uh, with philosophy as practiced by continental philosophers. But for a long time in analytical philosophy, Metaphysics was disparaged. They said, oh, it's all nonsense. All you can trust is what you can see. And therefore what we should be doing as philosophers is kind of guiding the natural sciences to greater precision, to greater logical uh, um, accuracy. We can think about ethics, perhaps how we should act. We should think about politics, how societies should be governed. But to think about these really, really fundamental questions like, um, what is the relationship between a property and, and a, a concrete individual? Uh, uh, do properties exist? What are numbers? I'll just, it, it's all, since you can't test it in a laboratory, 
uh, uh, your theses in the laboratory, it must be meaningless. That was a school that took hold of analytical philosophy for a long time. It's, it was called logical positivism. But I'm happy to say that metaphysics is very much back in the analytical tradition today. And it should never have really gone away because one of the founders of analytical philosophy was Bertrand Russell, who was an uh, unapologetic metaphysician. So that's the first thing. Uh, um, no, sorry, I've said both things. The first thing is, is, is how metaphysics is, is practiced in continental Europe, very much kind of a, an, almost like an existential meditation on what it means to have this thing called being. Interesting, but not what I'm gonna be talking about. Um, analytical, and the second thing is analytical philosophy does do metaphysics nowadays, even though it was out of fashion for a while. So perhaps another way to define what metaphysics is is to look at what contemporary metaphysicians are doing. We've spoken a lot about Aristotle. Well, there are loads of people today who actually get paid for a living. Uh, you're looking at one, uh, you know, to do this thing called metaphysics. So what do we do? And maybe if we look at what we do, we'll be able to uh, understand a bit better what metaphysics is. So uh, metaphysics today, here are you know, four influential metaphysicians in the analytical, analytical school. In the top left corner, there's Bertrand Russell. In the right-hand corner, there's Ted Sider, who's a philosopher at Rutgers in, in New Jersey. The bottom right-hand corner, there's David Lewis and his very impressive beard. Uh, he was a philosopher at Princeton. Uh, like I said, he died in the early 2000s. And uh, uh, Penelope, Mad Penelope Maddy is there in the left-hand corner, uh, also a, a contemporary living philosopher. Uh, uh, it has very interesting things to say about the, the, the metaphysics of number in particular, among many other things. Okay. Um, Metaphysics today, what are we studying? So I'm gonna just give you some examples. One thing metaphysicians are very interested in today is the nature of time. What is time? Um, there are two main theories um, which subdivide into many, many different ones. There's the B theory of time, um, which is often called eternalism. According to that view, time is very, very much like space. And in fact, it's quite static. All times timelessly exist, even the future. We only call it the future because it's later than us. For instance, I call Natanya here. But everybody else in this room calls Natanya there. Who's right, me or you? Is it here or is it there? Well, it just depends where you are, right? It's here for me because I'm in Natanya and it's there for you because you're not. Likewise, the word now, according to the eternalist, according to the B theorist of time, the word now takes out the time you happen to be in. But that time is no more real, it no more exists than other times. For example, your future self already exists and he's calling tomorrow now. And your past self uh, still exists and is still calling uh, yesterday now. Uh, this time doesn't cease to exist when it ceases to be now, just like this place doesn't cease to exist when it ceases to be here because I leave because I happen to leave it. All times exist. 
they're all equally real. Uh, um, in fact, the notion of the passage of time is an illusion. Okay, there is no passage of time. This is called eternalism, the B theory. The A theory uh, says, no, 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 no. Time is nothing like space. Time moves. We can feel time moving, right? Um, it, we wish it didn't move so quickly sometimes, right? It keeps pushing us forward into the future. Whereas the B theorist says that the passage of time is some sort of illusion. The A theorist says, no, it's a very uh, a fundamental aspect of time. And therefore you need to do some work as a philosopher if you really believe in the A theory to make your conception of time consistent with the physics. Because the physicist can make do with the B theory. The B theory is fine for the physicist, but philosophers are trying to explain more than just physics. Uh, um, philosophers want to come up with a fundamental explanation of all of reality that does some justice to our experience. And we experience time as moving. And if the physicist uh, can't accommodate that, well, maybe there's just more to time than what the physicist recognizes. So says uh, the A-theorist. Okay, um, so the nature of time is one thing they might look at. Uh, the nature of matter, uh, for example, uh, two very interesting questions about matter. Is matter infinitely divisible? Uh, if it is, then that's called the gunk theory of matter. Right? Or will we eventually reach the smallest possible particles, some physicists believe in things like the Planck length, that can't be further subdivided? That would be called atomism, right? Uh, um, Aristotle, by the way, was a gunk theorist and thought that atomism was crazy. Uh, most contemporary philosophers are atomists but, uh, uh, because they're guided uh, by the sciences, but not all uh, contemporary philosophers are atomists. Uh, uh, some are gunk theorists and they have philosophical reasons uh, for appealing to gunk. Uh, if you're interested in the nature of matter, you might be interested in the relationship between matter and mind. For example, what's the relationship between your brain, which is a clump of matter held between your ears in your skull, and your mind, which is the thing which has all of your mental experiences. Clearly there's a very tight correlation between the two, but are they the same? Are they identical? Is matter more fundamental than mind? Or is mind and matter equally fundamental like the dualists believe? Or do you adopt the crazy extreme that I happen to endorse, which is to say that mind is actually more fundamental than matter. And that actually matter is just um, some way in which the world is experienced, but experience is more fundamental than matter. That view is called idealism. Um, that, that's something that metaphysicians are still uh, debating. Oh, I've, I've clicked a few more uh, clouds. Um, appearance and reality. Philosophers, uh, metaphysicians are very interested in um, the distinction between appearance and reality. How do you take the very bizarre and alien world of contemporary sciences and construct out of that very crazy, you know, alien, exotic world with all of these particles and bosons and dimensions and whatever. How do you take that and recreate what philosophers today call the, what, sorry, what scientists today call the manifest image, which is that the everyday world that we experience, you know, seemingly through our eyes. How, how do those two things, the appearance and the, the so-called reality, how do they relate to one another? Okay, um, 
it's a philosophical question as much as it is a scientific one. What are properties? This goes all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, right? Do properties exist? That's still a question that contemporary metaphysicians are interested in. Um, and therefore, what are the foundations of reality? Like I said, is matter more fundamental than mind? Is mind more fundamental than matter? Um, is there one thing at the foundation of reality? If you believe that, you are what today is called a priority monist. I'm, I'm one because I think God, okay, is more fundamental than anything else. So there's one thing that, that, that functions as the foundation of everything else, so to speak, above it or below it, depending on which way you want to look at it. Okay, so are the foundations of reality singular, like I think, or are they multiple? If you're a physicist, sorry, if you're a physicalist and an atheist, I suppose you think there are as many foundational building blocks of the universe are there as there are quarks and strings, right? Because you don't get more fundamental than that if you're an atheist. Uh, but if you're a theist, you do get more fundamental than that. God, right? So is there one foundation to reality or many foundations to reality? Is the foundation material or is the foundation mental or is the foundation something else? The foundations of math mathematics. What are numbers and why is mathematics true? Okay, that's still part of contemporary metaphysics. The nature of truth. What does it even mean when we say that something's true? What does it mean when we say that something's false? Uh, what sorts of things can be true? And in virtue of what are they true? What sorts of things can be false? And in virtue of what are they false? That's something that contemporary metaphysicians are interested in. Oh, here's a good one. Mariology. Mariology is the study of the relationship between parts and wholes, okay? Wholes as in W-H-O-L-E-S, right? So take this chair, okay? This chair has many parts, and yet those parts seem to fuse together to create one whole. Now my nose is just as real as any one of the parts of this chair, and so is Sinner's ear, Sinner's right ear. But the parts of my chair fuse together to create a new thing called the chair. But my nose and Sinner's ear don't fuse together to create a new thing called an ear. Well, why not, right? Why do some parts fuse together to create a new entity, whereas others don't? Say, so, ah, well, the difference is that um, these things are close together in space, the parts of the chair, whereas my nose is, thankfully for Sinner, far away from Sinner's ear, right? So that might be a difference. Well, no, uh, some things are very big and spread out in space and the parts of a thing can be, you know, or you might even have, you know, a very, very big object with a hole in the middle, right? And, and it's still one object. So that's not the reason. And it's not glue and it's not nails that are sufficient because some things are put together without glue and nails. So what is it that takes some parts and makes a whole, but doesn't take other parts and make a whole? This question has bugged people for so long that it has come up that it, there are now uh, um, two very extreme positions that compete with the, the kind of commonsensical view. The commonsensical view is there is some rule here. Not all parts make a whole. 
only some parts do. And we just have to figure out, you know, when do parts form a whole and when do they not? That's the common sense view. It's called special composition. But Mariologists have found it so hard over the course of history to come up with a, a decent rule that you have these two extreme views. One's called Mariological nihilism, which says there are no holes, there are only parts. So there's no such thing as a chair. There are, there are only atoms arranged chair-wise, right? Um, because there are no holes. And if you don't like atoms, you say particles, right? There are particles arranged chair-wise. Or if you're a gunk theorist, there's gunk arranged chair-wise. But, but uh, there's no chair. There are just the parts. That's merological nihilism. Merological pluralism says, oh, any two things make a whole. So you know my nose and sinner's ear? That actually is an extra item. It's called, you call it whatever you like. Call it an ear or call it, uh, an, I don't know. Um, take any two things in the universe, they compose a third thing. That's called universal composition. So hard is Mariology that it has forced people to these very extreme uh, um, positions. Um, identity over time uh, is a very important metaphysical question. I share very little in common with my three-year-old self. Very few cells in common with my three-year-old self. Very few memories, if any, in common with my three-year-old self. Uh, 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 very, just very few properties in, in, at all. So what makes me a continuation of that three-year-old and not a continuation of some other three-year-old, right? Now, these are questions of identity over time. Um, is, it, is it that I have the same soul? Uh, if so, what is a soul, right? Or, or is, it some bio, is there some biological uh, um, condition that, that um, guarantees that I'm a continuation of, of, of my three-year-old self? Because if I had an identical twin, by the way, there would be somebody with, with uh, an equally close DNA uh, um, you know, ge genetic signature to me. So if, it's a, if, 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 if the answer to this question is biological, um, it's going to have to be a, a more complicated than just a, 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 a brute appeal to, to genes. And um, we can talk about the identity of things over time that aren't biological. Uh, you go back to uh, ancient times, Theseus's ship, right? Every year, Theseus's ship has a part replaced, right? Well, how many parts do you have to replace before it's no longer the same ship? Right, that's not a biological question because Theseus's ship isn't an organism. So, you know, what is it that accounts for the identity of objects or the identity of people over time? Uh, what is possibility? We say, uh, you know, when I throw a dice, there's a one in six chance that I'll throw a six. Well, what are these things called chances? A one in six chance that I'll throw a six. Some people think that there are actually six possible universes. And what we mean by saying that there's a, a one in six chance is that in one of the six universes that branches out from this moment, I throw a six. But in only one of them do I do that. The guy in the bottom corner, the right corner, um, David Lewis, he was what's called a modal realist, which means he thinks that every possibility corresponds to a real universe that's out there somewhere. You can't travel to them. Um, why did he think that? Why was he pushed to that? Well, he, he didn't think it was possible, possible uh, to give a, a, a compelling explanation of what possibility and probability are without believing in these things. And all of his critics uh, have, have tried to push back. Uh, that's another area of contemporary metaphysics. Oh, okay, sorry. Have, you know, now, uh, can I get into Cambridge? 
have I given you a definition of what metaphysics is yet? No. I've told you some things Aristotle said a long time ago about what he thought he was doing in the book that later got called The Metaphysics. We've looked at some of the questions that interested him in that book, and we've looked at loads of questions um, that contemporary um, metaphysicians engage in. Um, has this given us enough to define metaphysics? Well, let me give a stab at it. Uh, and I'm, you know, this is my own definition. I don't know if it works. This is controversial, like I said. Um, I think what probably unifies all of these questions is in metaphysics, we are interested in providing definitions of the most fundamental concepts necessary for all other sciences. So mathematics is interested in number. Yoffi, what is a number? That's metaphysics now, right? Um, um, all disciplines are interested in figuring out what the truth is, you know, what, you know, what is true from what is false, right? We're looking for a true physics, a true biology, a true history, a true psychological expert. The metaphysician asks, yeah, but what is truth? So we'll try and give a definition of that concept, which seems to be so fundamental that it's needed for, you know, for, for any other science. Um, indeed, Aristotle and contemporary um, metaphysicians are really interested in what is causation right, defining the word causation. Physicists try and discover what causes what, right, and, and so do other natural scientists. Philosophers say, yeah, what do you mean by cause, right? So we're interested in defining the most fundamental concepts necessary for an explanation of the world, for the world around us. Um, and sometimes, the process of coming up with those definitions requires us to, to, to posit into existence. That's to say, to believe that certain things exist that you don't discover in any other science. So for example, some philosophers think you can't actually give a good definition of what a property is without being a Platonist and really believing Plato's heaven. So sometimes the very process of, uh, of defining our most basic concepts also leads us to believe new things about the world itself, right? Um, and that's one area of metaphysics called ontology, which is um, the study of existence, where we're interested in figuring out, um, is to use a highfalutin phrase, what are the ontological ramifications of our definitions? Can you define number in such a way that allows you not to believe that the number two is a real thing that actually exists just as surely as the angels and God? Some philosophers say, yes, you can give a definition of number that doesn't actually require numbers to exist. Therefore, they'll say their definition has no ontological ramification. Other philosophers, like Gödel and Bertrand Russell say, no, 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 you can't define numbers in a way that's adequate for mathematics um, without believing that they exist. The best definitions of them have an ontological 
consequence and ontological commitment and ontological ramification that my goodness, do you know what numbers are? They're names for these things that actually, that actually exist and have these mathematical properties. Okay, whew. That was just gonna be like part one. <laughs> We've had an hour. Will you give me, will you give me 15 more minutes? You can all go away if you like, because it's being recorded. You can like take a break, come back, watch the recording in your own time. But I thought, having given you, having given you a kind of definition of, of, of metaphysics, um, oh, and I'll give you one more. These are not equivalent. And it might be that metaphysics does both of these things. Um, metaphysics is the attempt to unify all of the other sciences and come to our most fundamental description of the entire universe. So we take what psychologists tell us, what historians tell us, what mathematicians tell us, what physicists tell us, what sociologists tell us, take that all together and try and reconcile them into one completely fundamental account of the, of the universe. And in, in order to do that, we might have to say more than any one of those theories, uh, you know, more than just the collection of those theories. You might have to say more in order to arrive at our most fundamental description of the universe. That could be another way of defining metaphysics. I, like I said, I don't know if it would get me into Cambridge, but um, there we go. That's my definition of, of metaphysics or my two definitions of metaphysics. That was gonna be part one. And in part two, I, th I was thinking, let's do some, let's do some metaphysics. Um, so, I thought we could look at one interesting question. Um, how many things are there? Okay. Well, that could be a very difficult question to answer. You, you will have to start counting um, all the atoms in the universe, all the particles in the universe. All the, it could be an astronomically large number. How many things are there? Um, but there were some philosophers, and I dare say there still are some philosophers you think the answer is quite simple? There's only one thing. There's only one thing. This view is known as existence monism. It's a crazy view. I'm sorry to say, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, you know, so doggedly opinionated, but I, I am sorry to say a lot of uh, Jewish thinkers today, not the best ones in my, in my book, a lot of Jewish thinkers today are actually existence monists. Well, they get kind of carried away. Remember, you know how it says, ain odd milvado, there's nothing else but God. So, well, if there's nothing else but God, then there's only one thing. I once wanted to try an experiment because in Israel, it's a very uh, um, popular bumper sticker, ain odd milvado. So I wanted to try this experiment where you slam into the back of one of these cars and, you know, write it off. And then they get out very angry with you. Say, how could you have done that to my car? Oh, no, 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 I didn't do it to your car. Your car's not real. What do you mean my car's ain't odd, Milvado? You're not real, I'm not real. Only one thing exists, it's God. How could you be so upset? I'm God, you're God, the car's God. No harm done, okay? Because that is literally what some people think ain't odd, Milvado means. That fundamentally, there is only one thing. And the appearance of multiplicity is an illusion okay i don't believe that the great kabbalists 
who speak about Einar Nilvador in this way, I don't believe they actually meant it like the non-great Kabbalists of today. And if you're interested in that, my second part, my second piece of shameless publicity is that um, in my book on the principles of Judaism, there's a whole section on what I call nothing else-ism, where I give uh, my interpretation of what the great Kabbalists meant by Ein Od Milvador, and it ain't this, okay? But um, Parmenides um, would have liked that bumper sticker. This is a, um, a quote from Jonathan Schaffer, contemporary metaphysician, who, who, who defines existence monism as follows. He says, there are no particles, pebbles, planets, or any other proper parts to the world. There is only one seamless Parmenidean whole. There's actually a really great philosopher at Yale called Michael Della Rocca who, who, who believes this. So I don't wanna say it's completely stupid. Um, just wanna open the chat because people are chatting away and I'm not seeing what they're saying and probably missing, I can't, I can't find it. So I'm sorry, if you do, please be, feel free to, to share things uh, by raising your hand. But, but um, what I wanted to do, even though I am not an existence monist, is, uh, oh yes, Alan. Yes, uh, I'd like to ask you about the, uh, you talk about the continental um, philosophers and particularly the Germans, uh, chiefly Heidegger and the Holocaust, which to me is a major, major indictment of the whole system. Um, since they're interested in, uh, you know, metaphysics and how does, how did they reconcile their analytical approach to metaphysics and their embracing of uh, basically the Nazis and unrepentant. As a matter of fact, in 1960, Heidegger still didn't, uh, a, 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 what's it called? He didn't, think, he didn't think he had done anything wrong, which is bad enough during Nazism where people were cowed into doing this, that, and the other. But in 1960, there was no reason, and yet he felt he hadn't done anything wrong, which to me, to me, is the ultimate perversion of basically philosophy, because okay. it, serves no, it serves no no purpose. Okay. So let me let me respond to these to your question, and now now I've got the chat back up uh, to Rob Share's question, which I think is is related and very important. Rob Share Share asks all of these questions. They seem like rabbit holes that you could fall down into endlessly. And like what practical ramifications they have, like my nafkamina, right? What practical ramifications could any of this have? And um, if it has no ramification for practical life, then why is it important? Okay. And um, then I'll circle back to Alan's question. Well, First of all, not everything that's important does have practical ramifications. There is a basic desire that's, that I take to be a religious desire, which is to know the truth, right? To know reality at its most fundamental level, to understand the basic contours of reality to the best of our ability. Why might you want to do that, even if the answers you come up with won't necessarily in any obvious way 
change you know the policies uh, that you adopt in your life or in your or, or in your community or in your state personal life well the Rambam in Hilchot um, Torah says that we have a mitzvah to love God and God is the author of reality and the Rambam says the the, the best way and he to be fair, he doesn't say that it's for everybody. Uh, he doesn't think that, he thinks that you need to study uh, halacha first, um, in particular, the mutar and the asur, and, and, and really um, get a kinyan uh, in that area of Jewish thought first. But he says that to the extent that people are capable of chasing these rabbit holes down as far as they can go, they get to know reality better and therefore they get to know the author of reality better. And as they do, they come to love him more, right? The more that you understand the world around you and you recognize its dizzying complexity and then you try the, the never ending task of putting it all back together again once you've found all of these dizzying complexities it moves you forward in the love of God. If, of course, you're a theist, I can't speak to why atheist metaphysicians um, uh, practice what they practice. So that, that in and of itself, I think it is justification enough for doing it. Um, but a second reason is that actually you can never really know when knowledge will yield practical results. One of the really bad things about funding in universities is the money goes to the researchers who um, can best explain what the application of their research will be to the modern world. But much of the, the most important research that led to many of the most important technological breakthroughs was not pursued with any particular um, application in mind. So Bertrand Russell belonged to a school of philosophers who spent ages thinking about the words and, or, if, then, and not, the logical connectives from the last class, coming up with truth tables from them, thinking about what their logical uh, uh, status is. Can you interdefine them? Do you, you know, how few of these connectives can we do? Why were they doing that? I promise you it wasn't in order to help the first computer scientists uh, um, come up with the first um, computers and software languages. That was not their interest. They, that wasn't in their mind. They were just interested in reality the nature of logic and meaning. But the computer would not have been invented without the work in symbolic logic that that, that school of, of, of thinkers was engaged in, right? Um, so who knows what one might discover by uh, chasing these uh, rabbit holes. Uh, you, you might give birth to new sciences and Bertrand Russell speaks about in, in, in some of his writings about philosophy, I think it might be in Problems of Philosophy or it might be elsewhere. He says, the problem with philosophy is as soon as it does discover an application to something it, 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 it comes up with, it just gives birth to a new science. 
right? So once we got really good at philosophizing about um, human behavior, um, it stopped being philosophy and it started being psychology. And what's, you know, physics itself, biology itself, medicine, sociology, psychology, linguistics, uh, logic, computer science, all, all of these things splintered off from philosophy. And we can't know in advance what new sciences we will actually give birth to through the pursuit of metaphysics. There's no reason to think that we won't continue to give birth to new sciences. Um, and sometimes the things we discover have ethical ramifications. And it's true. Heidegger's metaphysics was consistent with his Nazism, to come back to Alan Harris. His metaphysics was consistent with his Nazism. That means I think we need to carry on doing metaphysics, come up with an alternative to the horrific metaphysics that gives rise to Nazism um, or makes room for Nazism. A lot of philosophers don't realize, but some do, that even their most abstract um, meditations can have ethical significance. We spoke about meriology, the relationship between wholes and parts. Margaret Thatcher said in a famous interview, there's no such thing as society, there are only individuals. Do you know what? That's the view of a meriological nihilist because parts don't fuse together to create holes. But if you believe that it's possible for parts to come together to create holes, if you have a different meriology, you might end up with a different politics. So there are ramifications. Uh, to thinking these things through. But let me also say, Alan, I think you made a, a, a small infelicity in your otherwise very important and well-worded question, which is that Heidegger's, Heidegger's metaphysics was not analytical. Heidegger belongs to the continental tradition. I belong to the analytic tradition. And the analytical tradition in its credit is much, much more rigorous. Um, and continental philosophy is quite poetic. And I think uh, continental philosophers were able to get away with saying a whole load of things that would not have flown uh, in analytical philosophy where they would have discovered the inconsistencies much quicker. Um, um, anyway, um, so, so I'm gonna- can you, can, can, uh, Just one, one quick uh, uh, response to that. And it seems to me then based on what you said, and, and I agree for sure, that uh, is it possible to do either the continental style, the being, versus the analytical one without the other. Because uh, a typical example, and I think Heidegger belongs to the pantheon of, of, of certainly modern philosophers, and someone who didn't see anything wrong with his reasoning. I mean, yes, he was- No, 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 that's not right, Alan. Heidegger would never be taught in a course of analytical metaphysics. He's, he is universally looked down upon as a, a, um, as a charlatan of a philosopher. He is hugely respected to this day in continental philosophy. Um, um, continental philosophy is, is almost a different discipline. For instance, when Derrida was awarded a um, an honorary doctorate in philosophy by none other than Cambridge, um, loads of analytical philosophers got together and said, that's not philosophy. That continental claptrap is not philosophy. That Heidegger inspired 
navel gazing is not philosophy. Um, um, I tried not to be too partisan in my original um, uh, portrayal of the distinction, but be under no illusion the philosophers who conduct analytical metaphysics do not think Heidegger is an example of anything to be emulated. Uh, they think he is shorn through with uh, logical fallacies. Um, um, I promise you as a practitioner of the discipline, uh, Heidegger will not appear on the reading lists of any reputable course in analytical metaphysics, despite his being one of the most prominent metaphysicians of the last century. He was prominent in a completely different school of philosophy. Um, so yes, I think um, my advice would be to do the analytical stuff without the continental. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not infallible, I can be wrong about things and there may be wisdom in the continental tradition that I don't see. And I know that Rav Soloveitchik and his student, um, um, Wishagrad, Michael Wishagrad, were um, hugely influenced by the continental tradition, including Heidegger. Um, it's just not my tradition at all. I see very little and, work and, in that stuff. And, and that's what I was getting at, that I'm, 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 I'm stunned that people like that actually uh, valued, I'll use that term, valued, continental. Yeah. I have no idea why Jewish philosophy is stuck in Germany after all that Germany did to the Jews. Um, 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 I would like to see Jewish philosophy come much more squarely under the analytical tradition. Um, but Wishagrad well, and... You know, that's the number. Isn't that I the agree, bumper? I agree. I think, the I think the analytical tradition is much more in tune uh, with with the medieval rationalist philosophers. Anyway, um, um, what I wanted to do was, was, was say quickly, I, we, got, we got way late, I, I wanted to say quickly, um, why might anybody believe, no, wor no worries, uh, uh, someone just told me that Sina had to, had to be off, that's no, no worries. Um, why would anyone believe this crazy thing that there's only one thing? I mean, there's only one thing, and I told you there's a really good metaphysician in Yale who believes this. Why, why would anyone believe it? Well, I wanted to give you some arguments. I don't believe it. I think it's wrong. And in my book, I explain why it's wrong. Okay? But I, I thought it'd be fun to give you the arguments. Okay? So there was this very important uh, philosopher called F.H. Bradley, and I just want to share with you one little argument. This is beautiful. So why think there's only one thing? Well, let's imagine the opposite. Let's imagine there's more than one thing. Okay, for the sake of argument. So we've now got at least two things. Call those things A and B, Yoffi. Now, if A and B both exist, they must be related to one another because as soon as you've got two things, they're gonna be related to one another. They're either gonna be similar or dissimilar, one's gonna be taller, one's gonna be shorter, one's gonna be to the right, one's gonna to be to the left. So you've got two things, they're gonna be relations between them, okay? and not the relation of identity, because if A was identical to B, then you wouldn't have two things, you'd only have one. So we're imagining there's more than one thing, A and B, they must be related. Well, what kind of relations are there? What, what kind of relation might hold between A and B if they really are different? Well, along, along comes Francis Herbert Bradley, and he says, there are two types of relation, internal relations 
and external relations. An internal relation holds between A and B merely because of the intrinsic properties of A and B. For example, take these two tennis balls. They have the relation sameness of color. Do you see that? It's a relation that's held between these two balls. It's not held between this ball and my, you know, those balls and my phone. They have a different relation, differentness of color. But between the two balls, you've got this relation called sameness of color. But as soon as I change something intrinsic to one of the balls, but they no longer have the relation. So an internal relation is a relation that holds between two things merely because of the intrinsic properties of the two things. What's an external relation? An external relation holds between A and B irrespective of their intrinsic properties. For instance, I just move one of the balls. I've not changed anything about the ball itself. You see that? And yet the relationship between the balls is now different. One used to be to the left of the other and now one's on top of the other. So the spatial relationships between the balls are external relations. I hope you've got that. So there are two types of relations, internal relations and external relations. We're, we're pretending for the sake of argument that there's more than one thing, A and B. And if, they, if there is more than one thing, there are two things, A and B, they must be related. What sorts of relations must there be between A and B? Well, says Bradley, they can't be only internal relations. Why not? If all the relations between A and B were internal, and A and B were the only things that existed, then A's character would be to a large extent dependent upon B. Likewise, B, B's character would be to a large extent dependent upon A. So let's think about it. You've got two things, but you can't say that one is to the right of the other or to the left or the other or above the other or below the other because those are external relations, okay? So we can't distinguish these two things in terms of their ex external relations, location in space or time. How else would we try and distinguish them? Well, maybe, um, in terms of um, color, in terms of their, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of intrinsic things, you know, uh, um, uh, their name, <laughs> I don't know, their, or their, how they feel, or I, I don't know, you know, the properties they might have. But if the only relations between them are internal relations, the worry is that they kind of get defined in terms of one another. So how do you distinguish A from B? Well, A is the one that has the lighter color than B, and B is the one that has uh, the darker color than A. Well, then A and B are defined in terms of each other if the only things which differentiate them, if, if the only relations between the two are internal relations, they become kind of like interdependent. And if they're really interdependent, then there's only one thing there. So Bradley says, look, if you really want to have more than one thing, you're gonna need some external relations, like A is to the right of B, right? See? Space is a great thing. Space helps us to, to distinguish things. Um, um, 
my two index fingers look very similar from, from this position, but you can distinguish them because they occupy different spaces. And, and, and that differenceness of space is not an internal relation, it's an external relation, right? Because you don't change anything about my fingers merely by moving them, nothing intrinsic to my fingers merely by moving them. If you really want to have more than one thing, you're going to need some external relations. External relations, says Bradley, paradoxical. So let's imagine that A is related to B by R, whatever relation you want it to be. A is to the left of B, A is above B, anything you like, R is the relation. If R is an external relation, then there's nothing about A intrinsically, and there's nothing about B intrinsically to explain why it is that R holds between them because it's an external relation. It's nothing to do with the intrinsic properties of A and the intrinsic properties of B. So there's nothing to explain why it is that R holds between them. It's as if we need something to stick this relation called R to A and B. So let's introduce a new relation called G for glue. Perhaps G is the relation that relates R to A and B. But the thing is, G will also have to be an external relation Otherwise, it turns out that everything we thought was an external relation between two things are just a disguised internal relation between three things. So no, 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 G needs to be an external relation too. But if G is an external relation, there's nothing about A and B and R to explain why it is that G holds between them. It's as if we need something else to stick G to R and A and B. So let's appeal to another relation, call it S for superglue. S is perhaps what glues G to R and A and B. But again, S will have to be an external relation. Otherwise, um, the things we thought were external relations are really disguised internal relations. But what sticks S to G and R and A and B if S is external? This is clearly a regress, right? And it's known as Bradley's regress. So there's Bradley all over the place, okay? Uh, it's a very famous thought. So the thought is, if all things are internally related, then they're also interdependent. So there's only one thing. And if there are, and, and things can't really be externally related because external relations are paradoxical, okay? Um, Bertrand Russell fought his entire career. So, so there's only one thing, says Bradley. Bertrand Russell fought much of his career trying to disprove Bradley. And there really are many things. If you're interested in that, that comes up a little bit in my book where I describe what I think ain odd mil vador really means. We don't have time to get into it today. But at the end of my logic class, I gave some further reading. So here for people who are interested in contemporary analytical metaphysics, none of that Heidegger claptrap, um, we have uh, two very nice int introductory books here. Um, uh, Metaphysics, The Basics by Michael Ray. It's kind of similar in length to the very short introduction to logic by Graham Priest that I advised last week. A slightly longer book, but equally introductory, is simply called Metaphysics by Peter van Inwagen. Interestingly, though it needn't be relevant, Michael Ray and Peter van Inwagen are both theists. And, and I'll stop with just this one anecdote, which is that um, um, atheism is the standard position among 
contemporary philosophers, I am sorry to say. But it gives me a great joy to say that a surprisingly large number of the best analytical metaphysicians, and, and best, I mean, even most prominent, are theists. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, Dean Zimmerman, um, Peter van Inwagen, um, um, Michael Ray, um, and so on. Um, so that might give us some pause for thought. Um, you can perhaps you can perhaps make do in the philosophy of science without God. You can perhaps make do in logic and epistemology, which we'll talk about tomorrow without God. You can perhaps um, uh, explain all sorts of things in the universe without appealing to God. But when you start getting interested in the most fundamental level of explanation, God somehow becomes much more attractive and plausible to people. Um, so, so many of the world's leading um, analytical metaphysicians um, are, are not embarrassed about their theism. So that's a nice little um, take home. Uh, that's not true, Alan, for the continental tradition of metaphysics, which is largely atheist. Okay. Um, right. There, there, um, there we go. Yeah, I'm finished. But if anyone wants to ask questions, please do stick around. Yeah. Um, I'm aware it's late um, and it's later for you. And sure. I'll, I'll deputize for Sin and, and thank, you know, you. thank you tremendously for absolutely fascinating and for guiding us logically through sort of the nature of the basics of, of, of metaphysics. And I think both this week and last week's sessions have been so informative and, and it's clear how you know, these fundamental rules and, and principles are, are critical tools that can help us in, in, in many fields. Um, yes. I absolutely believe, by, sorry, I absolutely believe, by the way, that these tools of metaphysics can help us in learning Talmud and can help us in, in, in learning Jewish texts. I, I co-edited co a book called Jewish Philosophy in an Analytical Age, and it has a number of articles that use contemporary metaphysics to try and unpack sugyas in the Talmud. Um, and that's worth looking at. Carry on, I didn't mean to... Um, no, I think also, as, as you mentioned before, that, you know, the awareness of these questions that can be seen as rabbit holes, um, it can enhance, you know, your Havat Hashem and you think right, like, existence and, and reality um, is, is unbelievable. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's late, so very excited for the, the third and final um, part of this series before we we'd most definitely have you back. Um, I think it's an epistemology, is that correct? That's right. The, the third and final introduction will be to epistemology. So thank you, thank you very much, um, Laila Tov, and, and good night, good night, everybody. Thank you, thank you very much. Alan, do you want to get that last question in, uh, non-compulsory, and then I'm going to go. I just wanted to mention that it seems to me that the Rambam, who was the ultimate rationalist yes. and was very much inspired by his own admission by Aristotle, then in fact did give us a lot of the tools that enable us to better understand the, the Gemara, even though, interestingly, he said that with the Mishneh Torah, we didn't need to study the Talmud anymore. That's for yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that's what the Rambam really meant. I, I really believe that in the introduction to the Rambam, it's Mishnah Torah, he's saying that for the lay person, it will yeah. no longer be necessary to study mm -hmm. Talmud. But that, but, but I don't believe he, he wanted yeshivas, God forbid, to give up 
uh, deep conceptual learning of the Talmud. And we know that from, from, from Avraham Ben Arambam and others. No, and, 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 and that's the whole point. That's what I was getting at in the beginning, is that I think 